0: Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. There's a call for Ontario's mask mandates to make a comeback. Hamilton's living wage has jumped again. Another Hamilton sports team is looking for temporary digs. We have new developments to tell you about in the war in Ukraine. Why is the pancreatic cancer survival rate stagnant? And Trump is launching another presidential bid. The GMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Let's continue, and we've done this over the last couple of days, talking about masks and mask mandates and strong recommendations from Ontario's medical Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, who says, listen, if you're in an indoor setting, put on a mask. We need you to do that. But the government has stopped short of mandating that we do just like it did in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario says that the government should be mandating masks and they should be doing this immediately. Dr. Doris Grinspawn is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Grinspawn, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick, and good morning, Hamilton. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, thanks for coming back on to to talk about this important issue. Why do you feel that we need a mandate?
2: Because we have a very, very uh, serious situation, a crisis in our hands, because we are canceling surgeries uh, for children, given that the, the three viruses, RSV, COVID, and the flu, are uh, in, are in the midst of us, and the only way to protect is to wear a mask in all indoor public places and it is also and we said that in our press release to roll out vaccines uh, immediately also to vulnerable populations as we did yep. in the midst of the height of the covid nineteen very successfully, so we know what works and Last time, as you may remember, we had a tragedy with older people in nursing homes, with residents. We now have absolutely overcapacity filled with children, our ICUs and our hospitals for children. And we don't want a tragedy and to avoid the tragedy, this is what we need to do. It's a small inconvenience, you know. For some, because many people will say, yeah, sure, makes sense. But for some, it will be a small inconvenience. And it is to the advantage of everybody else.
0: There's many people out there listening right now who, you know, do not want to put masks back on, whether it's an inconvenience or not. And maybe the thought is, listen, I had a mask on for a couple of years. I still got COVID. I passed it on to someone else. Uh, It doesn't matter whether or not I wear a mask. What do you say to that?
2: Well, first of all, if you wear a mask, a a good quality mask, you are absolutely uh, less less inclined to pass it on, especially if the other person also wears a mask. That's why we are saying mandated. Second, if that person had all the vaccines, right, uh, doesn't end up in the hospital, which is also what we are trying to avoid here. Remember, on top of everything else, there is also the fact that we don't have enough human resources, nurses and other health professionals, and that the ones that are in the front lines are absolutely exhausted. So we don't have a choice. It's not as if people don't do it, you know. uh, And and by the way, you're right, Dr. Moore said, and if, if we will see that this is not working, we will mandate Well. You are telling me it's not working, so let's mandate now so we prevent tragedy.
0: Dr. Doris Grinspun is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Grinspun is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. If there is no mandate forthcoming, and I have a hard time believing the provincial government is going to go that way, what's the impact? How much worse is it possibly going to get?
2: It will get worse, Rick, because the flu season is also here. So it will get worse. And it will get worse when actually that's completely avoidable. So we are saying don't wait for any mandate. Wear a mask in every single public indoor place, especially those places that are, um, you know, crowded with people. If you are going to a movie, if you are going to the theater, public transportation, all of the public transportation, children to school, others to university, to colleges, wear a mask because we do not need to uh, get it worse. We need to get it better, and we need to think we, not only me. We need to think we, because those families that have children in ICUs, they're not thinking the way that, you know, a casual conversation, what if not? So I understand what you're saying, and we are saying to the public, Please wear a mask in all indoor public places. Don't wait to be told. Also, get your vaccine and get the booster if you have not done so for COVID. And get also the flu vaccine. We want to have a decent, as it is, it will not be a fun winter, but a decent winter. We don't want more and more hardship on people.
0: Dr. Grinspun, I always appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us this morning.
2: Thank you very much. And Rick, one more thing. If people think that they already got COVID, they will not get it away or they will again or they will get it easier. That is not the case. People can get it again and again. And it's cumulative. We know already the side effects. So you don't want that either because you
0: don't want long COVID. That is a good point. Dr. Grinspun, thank you. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from
0: 900 CHML. As you know, the cost of living is is rising. We've seen housing prices skyrocketing, uh, including for rents, especially for rents, and the cost of food is is going up as well. Inflation is at a 40-year high. That is Tom Cooper from the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction talking about the living wage in Hamilton. It has jumped significantly since last year, according to the group Living Wage Hamilton, a group of stakeholders that analyzes this type of thing. Ted Hildebrandt is a senior social planner with the Social Planning Research Council and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ted, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Greg. I'm really good let's start with what is a living wage?
3: Good question. A living wage, now it's different than a minimum wage and a living wage really sets a higher test and reflects what people need to earn to cover the actual costs of living in their community. And so it helps uh, families get out of you know that severe financial stress that Tom was talking about by lifting them out of poverty and really providing that basic level of uh, economic security. And so in calculating the living wage, include things like food and clothing, shelter, transportation and child care, as well as a modest amount of rec- for recreation. But what it doesn't include, and that's why we say this is a modest uh, income or a modest wage, it doesn't include things like debt repayment or retirement savings or saving for a, a child's future education.
0: So basically, you are looking at average costs that someone would need money for, whether it's rent, clothing, food, uh, transit would be involved, I would assume, in that. And yes. you've come up with $19.05, which is way higher than last year's number.
3: That's correct. Yes, it's up nearly 11 percent. And I really would think that obviously we've uh, seen inflation increasing significantly. Now uh, we've got you know decades high inflation right now across the province and in our community, and uh, and as you can tell with our our newest calculation, it's significantly higher than even a minimum wage, which is at fifteen fifty currently, and really uh, shows the the challenge that people have in our community uh, to to make make a make make their ends meet and and do more than just make their ends meet, but actually be able to participate in a community. I think that's really what we're trying to, to show. This is about a, a wage that's not just about getting by, but about actually allowing someone to uh, participate in our community as, as a full member of our community.
0: We're talking about Hamilton's living wage now, sitting at nineteen dollars five cents an hour. With our guest Ted Hildebrand, he's a senior social planner with the Social Planning Research Council. And you're listening to 900 CHML. This is Good Morning Hamilton. You mentioned minimum wage uh, being fifteen fifty. This living wage is three dollars fifty five cents higher than that. That's a pretty big gap.
3: Yeah, that's a really big gap. And you know, the reality is, I think for many people, that's still have isn't enough. Um, As I said earlier, you know, it doesn't include some other typical things that people, you know, we know that people are in more debt, for example, and something that that we might be looking at that, you know, we're working with the uh, Ontario Living Wage Network, which helps us uh, calculate this, this rate. And, you know, something like uh, debt repayment might be something that we consider in the future, because it doesn't really even cover all of the costs. And I would say even things like shelter that, you know, we're looking at, Rents, for example, using Canadian mortgage and housing corporations, uh, average um, rents for the, from the survey that they do on an annual basis. But we know that it doesn't even necessarily reflect the reality of the market rent. If you're new to the market or you're moving, uh, you know we know that uh, rents have really risen a lot over the last number of years.
0: Apart from the individual that's receiving a living wage, and some do, there's some employers that are out there that offer that, the benefits for that individual are obviously self-explanatory, but for the employers, there's something in it for them as well, right?
3: Absolutely. For the employers, you know, when you have uh, employees that are getting a living wage, they tend to be happier in their their place. You're going to see less turnover because they're not Trying to scramble to find those two or three jobs to make to cover their costs. If they're getting a living wage, they're not going to they're not going to leave. And that costs. And so that means you have a better employee retention. Um, your training costs go down because you're not having to retrain people all the time. And you're probably going to also have more productive employees because they're satisfied with the the wage that they're getting, and they're going to contribute to uh, to the employer
0: the way we're going i mean we've had an 11% increase year over year in hamilton's living wage with inflation where it is the cost of living rental rates going up the housing situation where it is it, it seems almost inevitable that next year's number is going to be at least 20 dollars an hour
3: i i think that's not a stretch at all and and definitely you know obviously we're just uh you know even less than a dollar away from that currently and and so i think if the prices continue to rise as we've seen and inflation continues, then we'll definitely be hitting uh, that $20 mark uh, by next
0: year. Ted, appreciate your uh, analysis and insight on this topic. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Rick. That is Ted Hildebrandt. He is a senior social planner with the Social Planning Research Council, and they have tabulated the numbers and uh, Hamilton's living wage right now, nineteen oh five an hour. Where do you stand in comparison with that? Are you making a minimum wage of fifteen fifty? There's no doubt about it. You will be struggling to get by. Uh, it is a topic that will continue to follow as the cost of living continues to go up and up as many people find themselves between a rock and a hard place. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We should
2: have done a better job, uh, you know, in communicating this to the teams um, and in maintaining more frequent communications with them in a f- more formal way. And and so moving forward, we're committed to engaging with those more frequent touch points.
0: Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group President P.J. Mercanti on Hamilton Today yesterday afternoon with Scott Radley. Uh, after hearing from that group that the renovation of First Ontario Centre is now going to take Two years, much longer than originally anticipated, um, that arena's tenants, the Hamilton Bulldogs, the Hamilton Honey Badgers, and the Toronto Rock, are now looking for, well, a, a new place to play during the construction period. Joining us now is Jamie Dowick. He's the owner of the Toronto Rock of the National Lacrosse League. Jamie, good morning. How are you today?
4: i'm good thanks rick thanks for having me Uh,
0: your thoughts on what has happened because originally you were told that uh you know all these teams including the rock would be able to play at first ontario center during the renovations now well not so much and not so much for two years
4: yeah i mean you know it's it's a real unfortunate situation really for all of us but you know i mean yeah when we uh relocated to Hamilton, it was our understanding that renovations were going to happen and they would be able to work around us and this and that. But, you know, the way the world works, things change and, and um, you know, different groups got involved in the project and the scale of the project kind of kept changing. And, you know, I, I've been around long enough to know as those things happen, you know, so does timelines and, and, and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a real unfortunate situation, you know, I'm, I'm got my fingers crossed that, you know, considering I don't really start my season till the last month of the year, um, you know, I'm hoping it won't be two full years for me, but uh, you know, now the focus is on what do we do in the time being and, and, you know, I guess look forward to the return, you know, to what's going to be a world-class facility here in Hamilton, um, you know, probably as good as any of the buildings around. So, you know, that, you know, try and look at the positive, you know, stuff I can't control. So uh that that's kind of been my outlook on the whole thing and and uh that's where we are right now.
0: What you can control now is where this team plays, so where are you looking?
4: Well, I mean listen, our first uh you know, first and foremost, number one on the list is to, you know, try and place play in an arena as close as possible to where we play our home games right now, which is Hamilton. So um, you know, you can kind of do the math there. You've got to, you know, we're trying to, we're looking at our season's tickets maps. We're looking at our, you know, ticket maps. We're looking at what arena, you know, uh, works best for the team. You know, some, some are different sizes than, you know, say our turf and, and this and that. So, um, you know, it, we are going to stay as close as we can. Um, and uh you know i think we'll come up with you know a viable solution yeah it's not going to be in an arena obviously nearly as big as the first ontario center um but you know it will be able to you know put on and our our events and performance unfortunately we just won't be able to do it in and it's front us many, many people.
0: Uh, Jamie, we've got about a minute. Uh, this, this uh, franchise is kind of straddling two markets. It's the Toronto Rockets playing in Hamilton. Is this a big setback that you have to at least relocate for a couple of more seasons?
4: Well, it's definitely a setback in the sense that we're only one year into Hamilton and we dealt with COVID and, you know, we're still kind of trying to, to make our home there and, and make us visible there. Um, yeah, it, it, we'll deal with it. We're, we're, we're going, we're going back to Hamilton. Hamilton's our home. That's where we play our home games. The, the, we'll deal with this arena thing, um, you know, and, and try and make the best decision to not alienate the most people in where we play over the next couple months or years. I I think we got, we got a pretty viable solution, hopefully uh, in the works and, and I think we can make it work. And then, You know, we'll be back in Hamilton, but, you know, you say Hamilton team, Toronto's team, you know, I've said it from day one, uh, you know, even when we played downtown Toronto, to me, we were Ontario's team. Um, We're the only professional team in Ontario and we represent the entire province in Toronto, greater Toronto area. Um, You know, I know there's a bit of a rivalry between the two cities, but, you know, we felt like we've always represented you know both cities, all cities, and uh, you know Hamilton is, is is now our home.
0: Should make for, mention for that games, yeah. Should make mention that the Toronto Rock will be playing their season at First Ontario Center this year. You can get your tickets at torontorock.com. dot com. Season opener December third against Vancouver. Jamie, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah,
4: guaranteed win night December third. If we don't win our home opener, and you purchase a ticket we'll uh we'll we'll give you a ticket to come back down to another game, but uh should be pretty exciting. We're looking forward to you know I know there's the delay coming up, but full steam ahead this year at first Ontario Center, and we're excited to be back
1: in Hamilton.
0: Good to hear thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Rick. That's Jamie Dabak, owner of the Toronto Rock. Again, torontorock.com for more information.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: NATO allies are investigating how a Russian-made missile landed in Poland, killing two people close to the country's eastern border with Ukraine. We're just hearing this morning that Poland's president, says there are no indications that this missile blast was an intentional attack, describing it as mostly, uh, most likely an unfortunate accident. Uh, Here to talk about it is retired Major General Dennis Thompson of the Canadian Armed Forces, a 39-year military veteran who was NATO's commander of Task Force Kandahar in 2008-09, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and the University of Manitoba's Center for Defense and Security Studies. Mr. Thompson, welcome back to the show. How are you today?
5: I'm fine, Rick. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, As unfortunate as this incident was, is it also a sigh of relief that it wasn't a Russian-fired rocket, which may have triggered uh, Article 5 of uh, among NATO members?
5: If that is the case. But of course, we have to wait until the investigation is complete, and the investigation will determine what the point of origin of the missile was, or missiles. We're not sure if it's one or two. Uh, and, and I think uh, prudence would tell us that we need to wait until the, that investigation is complete. What is known, though, if you We're to look at a map at this uh, village in Poland is about 70 kilometers north of Lviv. And yesterday, the Russian ship fired over 100 cruise missiles and 10 drones at Ukraine. So it is conceivable that a, and this is just a scenario, that a surface-to-air missile, uh, in its attempt to intercept one of these cruise missiles, ended up uh, landing in Poland. And and that can happen if uh, you fire multiple surface-to-air missiles at a target, If one of them doesn't detonate against the target because it's already taken out, it'll carry on and land somewhere else. And that could well be the scenario that we're looking at today.
0: How do you investigate something like this? Because I would imagine there's not much of the missile left.
5: Well, yes, there are the missile components, and that's why we've already heard that it's of Russian manufacture, but that doesn't really mean too much because, of course, the Ukrainians use a system called the S-300, which is of Russian manufacture. Um, but it, again, it could be, uh, we don't know exactly which, which type of missile it was, and we'll find out eventually. So that's number one investigate the components. Two is the crater. Uh, there are people who are specialized in examining these craters to determine what the angle of impact was and what direction it came from, and you can, uh, you can uh, rearward engineer the trajectory of the rocket to determine what its point of origin is. And then three, there's always um, every missile launch is detected by satellites, uh, not not particularly not overly sophisticated satellites because a missile when it launches, if you can imagine watching a welding torch go up in the sky, it, it's pretty easy to pick up on a um, on a satellite. So, uh, you know, these three things will indicate to them once they put it all together where the missile uh, originated from and whether or not it was Russian, Ukrainian, or um, some other nefarious actor.
0: How long does this usually take? Would we know within the next few days, or is it a little longer than that?
5: I think we'll know within uh, 24 hours. If, if we, we probably will know today. Remember that this strike occurred um, and that there weren't really people on site until it was nighttime in Poland, so uh, they have the full day to work on it now. And uh, I think they would want to work with uh, the, uh, obviously, accuracy but with the greatest haste possible in order to get some clarity on this and and uh, assign responsibility and move on. But what's clear is this wouldn't have happened had Russia not launched as i mentioned 100 cruise missiles and 10 drones towards uh, civilian infrastructure inside of Ukraine. So they they cannot escape some uh, responsibility for the for the uh, the death of these two Polish people.
0: If it turns out to be that this was a rocket fired by Russian forces, um, is Article 5 automatically implemented or is there a discussion before that is the go forward plan?
5: Well, there's obviously a discussion. If you remember back to 9-11, uh, Article 5 was the, it's, it's been the only time that Article 5 has been invoked and it didn't happen until after a full investigation took place and established uh, where the attack initiated from, obviously, inside of Afghanistan. And that took until the 4th of October, 2001, so almost a month. Now, this is a totally different circumstance, obviously. It's not nearly as complicated as the attack on the Twin Towers uh, and and the United States in general. So we should have a result quickly. But it's not automatic. Every nation uh, still guards its sovereignty, but they have all... Uh, declared that an attack against one is an attack against all before you get to article five of course there is this article four which has been invoked and it basically means that if the territorial integrity or political independence or security of any of the party uh, member states is threatened then they can ask nato to invoke article four which is uh, used to provide material support to NATO members that feel threatened. And so that's already happened on several occasions, but most recently, in the as a result of Russia invading Crimea in 2014, and not surprisingly, the Eastern European NATO states invoked it in, uh, shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in, this year in 2022. Uh, and that ha- that is why they have been able to flow so much materiel into the Ukraine through all these NATO states because they're cooperating, and it's also why they have bolstered the eastern flank of NATO, which includes Canada's deployment in Latvia. Uh, you might recall that in late June, at the NATO summit in Brussels, the minister and the prime minister committed to to uh, increasing the size of Canada's deployment in Latvia. So. Uh, if it turns out to be Russian, the first step will probably go to Article 4. And since it wasn't an attack, if it, that's what it turns out to be, on a military target of great significance, we're talking about a farm and notwithstanding the loss of life, uh, it, it's not on the same scale as, say, a, a concerted attack against a NATO base. So we're not anywhere near that uh, today. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the best, if that's the word, the... The most you could expect is is a uh, convening of NATO in Brussels in order to just discuss an Article 4 response.
0: Well, we will uh, wait with bated breath in terms of what this uh, investigation uh, uh, entails. Uh, Major General Thompson, thanks for your time today and appreciate the insight. Enjoy your day today. Thank you. That is retired Major General Dennis Thompson, Canadian Armed Forces, a 39-year military vet who, among his many accomplishments, was NATO's commander of Task Force Kandahar in 2008 and 2009. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. From 900 CHML.
0: I want to shine a light on a very important topic because this month is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And I did not know this until our next guest and the representative sent an email saying, hey, you know what? 90% of the people who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer die within five years of that diagnosis. And 75% die within that first year. And just as sobering, despite, you know, the attention that we pay to cancer and and in particular pancreatic cancer at times, especially during this month, the survival rate has been stagnant for about 50 years, which is kind of mind boggling because other cancers have made some progress in terms of treatment, uh, early diagnosis helping people recover from these cancers, pancreatic cancer, in a very different place. Michelle Copabianco is the CEO of Pancreatic Cancer Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Michelle, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Those stats, as I said, are absolutely mind-boggling and sobering. What comes to mind when you think of this disease? What comes to
6: mind when I think about those statistics is anger. Anger that we have become complacent and accept it that it has become something that we just acknowledge when people think about pancreatic cancer, it's, oh, that's the one where you die or that's the one where there's no treatment. A, there are treatments and B, there are survivors, but the only way to move those survivor numbers up is for people to start taking it seriously, stop accepting it and start funding research and putting more attention to the disease.
0: So how do we do that? Uh, besides the, the, the research part, how do we shine a bigger light on this and get this into people's minds that, uh, hey, let, let's turn the tide here?
6: First of all, by talking about it. Uh, the more I go out and tell people what it is that I do for a living, the more I hear about people who have been affected by pancreatic cancer. And they often don't know the signs and symptoms. They don't know the risks. Um, even GPs who I talk to will admit they will only identify one or two cases in their lifetime and are not always sure what they're identifying. Nor are GPs aware that there are treatment options and often send people home to get their affairs in order.
0: Wow, what are those risk factors?
6: So some of the usual bugaboos with cancer, smoking, alcohol consumption, a diet high in cholesterol, fried foods and red meat, obesity. Some of the other things that are a little less obvious, your chances increase with age, with over 90% of people being diagnosed above the age of 55. If you are African-American or an Ashkenazi Jew, you have a slightly higher chance of developing it. If you live with chronic pancreatitis, diabetes that is either longstanding or is a recent onset of diabetes is also a sign. And then there are some really important ones if you are in a job that increases your risk, like firefighters. We are continually hearing about firefighters who are developing pancreatic cancer. The final one is family history. You need to be aware of what is what kind of type of cancers are in your family.
0: In terms of research being done, is there enough getting done at this point?
6: No, there isn't enough being done, quite frankly. And, and the reason is that researchers are forced to spend at least half of their time hunting for funds to cover their research, which means a good 50% isn't being spent in the lab because they're looking for research funds. And they have to go with where the money is. And there is so little money allocated to pancreatic research that it doesn't attract as many researchers as we need. That's not to say that there's not some groundbreaking research being done that we are funding. There is, and there is some exciting research in early detection, but there needs to be more. There needs to be the same focus that there was on breast cancer. 40 years ago, breast cancer had the exact same statistics as as pancreatic cancer does today. And today, breast cancer survivors like myself at stage one or stage two breast cancer have an incredible survival rate. We need that same attention and effort put towards pancreatic cancer. Uh,
0: Michelle, we have one more minute. I want to leave our listeners with a, uh, a go forward plan or a to-do list here. How can we help support Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, not only this month, but all through the year?
6: All through the year. And November 17th, I'll mention is World Pancreatic Cancer Day. The best way is to donate. So pancreaticcancercanada.ca, donate, talk about the disease among your family, talk about the risk factors, be aware that there are treatment options, be aware that the number one thing you should do when you're diagnosed is to ask about palliative care, because palliative care is not about giving up, it is about living longer with whatever cancer you have.
0: That is a great message, and we encourage our listeners to go to pancreaticcancercanada.ca, learn more about the disease, donate what you can, and uh, let's get these statistics much, much better. Michelle, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Michelle Capobianco is the CEO of the Pancreatic Cancer Canada. More details online, pancreaticcancercanada.ca.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: So this happened last night. In
7: order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States.
0: Well, there were many cheers at Mar-a-Lago last night as former U.S. President Donald Trump officially launched another run for the White House. And I am almost as positive. In fact, I'm 100 percent positive there were many groans in the U.S. of A. and beyond (laughs) after Donald J. Trump announced he's going for another bid for the White House. If you have thoughts on Mr. Trump launching another presidential bid, I'd love to hear your thoughts. The start of his announcement last night was, well, uh, traditional vintage Donald Trump. I want to thank you all
7: for being here tonight. It's a very special occasion at a very special place. You and all of those watching are the heart and soul of this incredible movement and the greatest country in the history of the world. It's very simple. There has never been anything like it, this great movement of ours. Never been anything like it. And perhaps there will never be anything like it again. There's never been anything to compete with what we have all done. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests and my fellow citizens, America's comeback starts right now. Two years ago, when I left office, the United States stood ready for its golden age. Our nation was at the pinnacle of power, prosperity and prestige, towering above all rivals, vanquishing all enemies and striding into the future, confident and so strong. In four short years, everybody was doing great, men, women, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic Americans, everybody was thriving like never before.
0: So as you can probably tell, Mr. Trump was laying it on thick, as he usually does when he's at a podium or in front of a microphone. Now, special occasion, which he was absolutely right, it is a special occasion whenever someone announces uh, their candidacy for president. But things like greatest country and there's never been anything like this movement. You know, you can you can parse some truth out of that for sure. And then it kind of gets off the rails a little bit when he and this is a great slogan. The comeback starts now. Yeah, it's going to rally the troops. Let's go, USA. What comeback? What what is America coming back from? High inflation? Um, Severe job loss? A looming recession on the way? I mean, there's there's many challenges ahead. I would say that America is in good stead amongst the international community. Perhaps not like it was before when, oh, Mr. Trump was in power. Which, by the way, he called the pinnacle of power, prosperity, and prestige. And many would debate that point. That under President Trump, that America was not... The pinnacle of power, prosperity, and certainly not prestige. And uh, well, here's his newest campaign slogan Two years ago, we were a
7: great nation, and soon we will be a great nation again. The decline of America is being forced upon us by Biden and the radical left lunatics running our government right into the ground this decline is not a fate we must accept when given the choice boldly clearly and directly i believe the american people will overwhelmingly reject the left's platform of national ruin and they will embrace our platform of national greatness and glory
0: well that remains to be seen The fact of the matter is that Mr. Trump has a lot of heavy lifting to do. I know he has a passionate following, but there are other major players in the race, or at least on the cusp of entering the race. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, Liz Cheney, I'm sure is going to put her name on the ballot or up for consideration. And when the GOP, the grand old party, the Republican Party, meets and discusses, well, who gives us the best chance of winning the White House? Or are we going to lose yet another election? They're going to point to uh, some statistics, some of those being the midterm elections. And so here's what Mr. Trump had to say about that. Much criticism is being
7: placed on the fact that the Republican Party should have done better. And frankly, much of this blame is correct. But the citizens of our country have not yet realized the full extent and gravity of the pain our nation is going through, and the total effect of the suffering is just starting to take hold. They don't quite feel it yet, but they will very soon. I have no doubt that by 2024, it will sadly be much worse, and they will see much more clearly what happened and what is happening to our country, and the voting will be much different 2024
0: basically what president trump was saying there was you dumb americans have no idea how ruinous the country is right now and in two years time you're going to want me to fix it all again (laughs) let's remind everyone as well that the republicans did win the house in the midterms but they do not control the senate the democrats still do so that friction and that stalling of government is clearly going to be evident for the next two years Can Trump rally the troops and somehow pull another one out of the bag? That remains to be seen. That'll be up to American voters in two years' time. Thanks for listening
1: to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.